If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. But I have good news for you and I have bad news for you if you love the book of Ephesians. The good news for you is that we'll be in Ephesians this morning. The bad news is this is our final message of a year-long series where we've been walking through this glorious book together and the Lord has been teaching us wonderful things. Let's uh, ask his help as we move into this passage this morning. Father, as we have sung, you are not only the famous one, but we are gathered together in this place to acknowledge that you and your name alone is the only name worthy of praise. And so we ask that you would use our time now gathered together to refine us as a people so that our love for you and our delight in you might grow. So lead us, please, by your Spirit, so that we might see the glory of Jesus revealed in this passage. We ask in his name. Amen. So one of the things that makes the writings of the New Testament so interesting to me personally and frankly so so moving is the fact that many of the letters include intriguing details and very personal requests that serve as kind of like tiny windows into the people and the circumstances around which each of the letters revolve. The small details cause me to, to, to wonder more about what certain people were like. Or how did Paul and Luke or Barnabas or Silas or Titus or Timothy or Lydia or any of the believers that came to know Paul, how did they actually meet? We have some answers to those questions, but not a lot. What do the conversations like between these people what did they sound like as, as the conversations unfolded? What else was said in those conversations that is not recorded? Probably the majority of the conversation, right? Who else was present for these major New Testament events? And we just have no record of their being in attendance. I wonder how those people responded to the events that were taking place. In other words, small details and, and, and personal references make me long to know more about the situation. Thankfully, next week we will dive into a book. We will begin a new series on a book that is extremely unique in answering at least some of the questions that arise. The book of Acts provides so much context for us and answers so many questions within the New Testament letters that it really is uniquely invaluable to our understanding of the rest of the New Testament. So I trust that our, our excursion into Acts will be both joy-filled and that it will also stir us to love and to good works 
as we seek to serve as, as witnesses in our culture to the greatness of the glory of Jesus Christ, to his death and resurrection. But this week, as we conclude the magnificent letter to the Ephesians, these, these last few verses provide a taste of some of those tiny details that may cause us to long to know more. But at the same time, it provides closure for us by capturing the essence of this book's profound theological truths. Our passage then is comprised of the final four verses of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, verses 21 through 24. Hear the word of our glorious God. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Father, please lead us now through the power of your Spirit and bless us with his presence as we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the clearest and perhaps most overlooked truths that the Bible reveals serves as our main point this morning. And that is simply that God often demonstrates his power in practical ways through ordinary people. God often demonstrates his power in practical ways through ordinary people like you and me and Paul and Tychicus. Now, this morning I want to break down just this small section into, into two. First, I want to look at the personal details that are recorded here in verses 21 and 22, and then we'll look at the, what we might call the prayerful doctrine of Paul as he closes the letter in verses 23 and 24. We'll begin with our first section. One of the hardest things to deal with when you're apart from loved ones is simply the reality of, of not knowing. Not knowing what they're experiencing on a daily basis or depending on the circumstances, not knowing what they're experiencing even from moment to moment. If your child's at an overnight camp, as much as we trust Mr. Seth and, and his fantastic staff, you want to know where your kids are sleeping that night. You want to know what specific bed in what cabin, because it will help you have peace when you go to sleep at night. If your loved one is, is deployed overseas, you want to know that they're safe at the end of each day. You wonder what their day was like. Were they encouraged or were they discouraged? 
Did anything make them smile today? Were they concerned about anything in particular? And how concerned were they? they, Have they been aware of the Lord's presence as they've gone about their day? Have they been trusting in Him? Or was today one of those days where they felt very distant from God? I mean, even with with, with FaceTime and with, with Zoom and with the, the latest technology of the moment, distance is hard. So imagine what it was like 2,000 years ago when instant communication was not a reality. Visual communication was not a reality. Even regular communication of any distance, over any distance, was not a thing. And then imagine how precious to you a written letter you received from a loved one would have been. How priceless would a a face-to-face visit from a trusted friend, how precious would that be? One who could offer to you a first-hand account of how your loved one was doing. I looked in Paul's eyes And I'm telling you, he was strengthened in the Lord. He longed to be with you, but but he was fearless in proclaiming the good news about Jesus. That would encourage your heart to know he was doing well. Paul describes Tychicus in two ways. He describes him as a beloved brother and as a faithful Minister. Now, Paul's not just being nice here, right? Paul was not afraid to call somebody out if he didn't agree with where they were or how they were thinking or living or acting. So for him to say this about his dear brother, that he was beloved and he was a faithful minister, carries a lot of weight. Tychicus is mentioned in five places in the New Testament. Each one is brief, but in much the same way that I was talking about increasing our longing, each of the snapshots tell us just a little bit more about this faithful brother. Ephesians was the major city in the province of Asia, and Acts 20 and verse 4 tells us that Tychicus was a native of this exact region. He first appears at the end of Paul's missionary work in Ephesus. So it's logical to conclude that he very well may have been converted under Paul's ministry and through his preaching. We don't know that for sure. Tychicus was one of seven men who were traveling companions of Paul that were named in Acts 20, which which causes you to wonder, what had Tychicus seen either as he was listening to Paul or as he traveled with Paul? Was he there for the the silversmith's riots? And how was it that, that this particular man had become so trusted by the great apostle Paul? Tychicus was likely the one who carried the offering for the poor in Jerusalem, mentioned in multiple places in the New Testament. Romans 15 and, and Acts 24 are two of those places. Tychicus was the one who accompanied Onesimus to the church, 
to the Colossian church. Anesimus, that is the slave that ran away from his master Philemon. Presumably, Tychicus carried the letter Paul had written to Philemon so he could give it to him in person. Tychicus traveled with Luke and Paul on his, on his dramatic and eventful journey to Rome, which included arrest and imprisonment in Caesarea. It included appearances before kings and governors. It included a shipwreck and house arrest in Rome, just to name a few of the things. So when Paul details his ministry trials, in many ways, he's also detailing the ministry trials of his beloved friend. At the end of Paul's life, Tychicus was with Paul in Rome until Paul became so anxious to see Timothy that he sent his friend back to Ephesus where Timothy was ministering to essentially check on Timothy and ask him to, to, to visit Paul one more time. Again, it seems very likely that Tychicus probably carried 2 Timothy with him when he went to go visit Timothy and ask him to come to Paul, one of the very last letters that Paul wrote. Further, Tychicus may have been the one who actually served as Paul's scribe as he was writing Ephesians and Colossians and the letter to the Laodiceans, in addition to his letter to Philemon. You want to talk about longing to know what those conversations were like. Did, did he ask Paul questions as he was writing it down? Hold on, Paul, can you clarify that? Do you want, do you want to say that a little bit more succinctly? Because it's really great and all, but I don't really understand what you were talking about there. I mean, what did the inspiration of the Holy Spirit look like as these two conversed or as he wrote down what Paul said? It's fascinating to think about. Redemptive history literally unfolded in these conversations. That's amazing. Stop and think for a moment. Who are the people that come to mind for you? If you think of a beloved brother or sister or a faithful minister in the Lord. Maybe it was somebody who shared the gospel with you when you were younger or, or walked with you through a particularly difficult time. Perhaps it's somebody that's in your life now. Maybe somebody in your growth group. What about faithful Ministry partners, what, 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 what faces are coming to mind as you think about people who have been in the trenches with you when you've walked someone through a difficult time and together worked to point them to Jesus? Who has clarified the good news of the gospel for you? Whether that was a Sunday school teacher or someone did it over the phone or over a cup of coffee or lunch. Who pointed you to Jesus when you most desperately needed it? Who has confronted you and challenged you when it was necessary? 
I would encourage you to take a moment, even at this moment, to thank God for these people. Because evidence of God's grace to you often has a name and a familiar face. So Paul is sending his friend to Ephesus for a couple of reasons. First, to deliver a few letters for him. Letters that Paul wrote while he was under house arrest in Rome. He asked him to deliver this letter to the Ephesians. He asked him to deliver a slightly shorter letter that he wrote to the Colossians. He asked him to deliver the lost letter to the Laodiceans. Now, I'm not putting that on Tychicus. What did I do with that last one? It <laughs> fell over the boat into the water. <laughs> At least we know what happened to it. But he imagined he was the one who carried the original letter to the Ephesians, the original letter to the Colossians. He was the first one probably to read it to them or to explain it to them, possibly expound on it. What did Paul mean when he was saying this? Oh, you should have seen his eyes light up. He was describing every truth. I had to cut him off finally. Finally, I had to cut him off. I said, Paul, that's enough. This sentence is this long. And he said, I'm writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I say, I know, but it's got to be clear. I mean, you can only imagine what he said to him. There's no way, there's no way that Tychicus could have ever guessed that literally billions of people would still be reading the letters that he carried in his cloak. Two thousand years ago, carrying them for the simple, with the simple intent of Paul saying, "You want to know how I am? You want to know what we're doing?" Oh, I, I wanted to say a couple encouraging words to you also. Here, take this. I wonder if there are things that God has done through you of which you may be totally unaware. Things that we will be celebrating for eternity. I remember a kid that I worked with named Tom. You're talking over 30 years ago. The only thing that I remember about Tom was that he used to carry his Bible in his back pocket. I mean, that's a lot of book to... To fit into your back pocket. Maybe, maybe it was just a New Testament. I'm not sure, but it was thick. And he would carry that thing around in his pocket. The reason I remember it is because I remember what I thought about it. I thought, I would never do that. And I remember feeling conviction, and I remember feeling impressed that he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed to have his Bible with him. He was not ashamed that people would know that he loved God. There's no way that he could have known that something that simple would be being discussed 30 years later in a sermon. And I, I hope Tom's in heaven because I want to go up to him and I want to say, Thank you. 
Thank you for the faithful witness of being willing to be associated with God, of not being ashamed of the gospel. And he'll say, what are you talking about? I'll say, you used to put your Bible in your pocket and take it with you to work. And he would say, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I remember praying one day, God, would you cause someone to notice this? But no one did. So at the end of the day, I just put it back on my nightstand and thought, well, it was worth a try. Little did he know. Every once in a while, when I think of Tom with his Bible in his pocket, I feel emboldened, emboldened to proclaim the good news of the gospel. How crazy is that? Based on this one incident from 30 years ago. But Tom showed me that God often demonstrates his power in practical ways through very ordinary people. Besides carrying the letters, the second express purpose for which Paul sent his friend to Ephesus was to encourage the hearts of the believers in Ephesus. Paul says he will tell you everything. Can you imagine how riveting that conversation would have been with the the little house church or the little house churches in Ephesus? Can you imagine what would have been included in the everything that he was sharing with them about Paul and about what they had been through together as the Spirit of God led them through situation to situation. But above all, he could tell the believers that Paul, though arrested, was faithfully proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Besides this firsthand account of what happened to them and how they were doing, Tychicus would also bring tremendous encouragement to both, both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers when he read this particular letter. Because it reminded them of what God had done for them. It reminded them of the high calling of unity to which they were called because of God's work in them. Imagine sitting there and and this letter is about to be read and underneath the surface is this kind of low-grade seething bitterness toward your Gentile or your Jewish brothers because you don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And then Ephesians is read to you and it drives a stake into your bitterness and gives you an increased desire for Unity. There's a lot of wonderful theological content in Ephesians, but verse 22 tells us why Paul wrote it in its simplest state. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's the primary personal reason for Ephesians. And the theological content is just a bonus. (laughs) What a glorious bonus it is. Paul goes on to say, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So right out of the gate, notice in this last section, these final two verses, that, that much like the benedictions that we offer at the end of our corporate gatherings, they are most always an 
and in essence, prayers. If I'm asking that you would be blessed, what I'm really doing is praying that God would bless you. It's the same way here with Paul's final words. You might have had the experience of of praying over your children at night, saying something like, may the Lord bless you and protect you as you sleep. This is more than well-wishing, right? We are cognizantly aware of the power and the presence of God to protect our children. So when we say, may God strengthen you and help you to sleep peacefully, may he protect you from evil, we are asking God to do that very work in the nature of what we are sharing with them. So with these final words, Paul is praying these doctrinal truths. Remember the love that was expressed between Paul and the Ephesian church, and in particular the Ephesian leaders. After, after the riot, Paul calls the leaders to Macedonia where Paul ended up. He preaches for a while in Eutychus, which sounds a lot like Tychicus, fell out of the window and died, and Paul raised him from the dead. Then they go out to the beach where they were, or the Mediterranean Sea, fall down on the ground and pray and weep because Paul tells them, this is the last time you're ever going to see me again. Think about if God, God gifted you with the privilege of, of sharing last words with someone that you loved. You want to make those words count. What, what would you say? What Paul is doing here is, is, is calling them back to every promise he has just articulated in the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. These incomparable words and the words that follow from Ephesians 1 are an exposition of the grace that belongs to all who are in Christ so, so Paul begins this little section by accentuating peace. Peace for the Gentile and the Jew. But in, in context of Ephesians, this is peace with God and this is peace with every other being in the cosmos because this is the goal. When he mentions peace, he's calling us back to chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10 where he describes the redemptive goal of everything. God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ, is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, things in the temporal, physical world and things in the spiritual realm. Out of this incredible cosmic call to unity flows the very practical and powerful call for Jewish and Gentile believers in the church at Ephesus to be united in Christ. Based on their common lostness, Paul argues, and based on the uncommon faith to which they have both been called, Paul exhorts both Jews and Gentiles toward unity grounded in the work of Christ on the cross. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is how Jesus accomplished unity. In chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says that the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Imagine how this would have fallen on the ears of those who heard it for the first times, both on the ears of a Jew and on the ears of a Gentile. All of the promises are true for you in Christ. My largely, and I might even say almost exclusively Gentile brothers and sisters, let's be clear about this. Apart from the gospel coming to the Gentiles, we, every one of us, would still be dead in our sins. Praise God that Jesus came and preached peace. Praise God that the Prince of Peace came to earth because as a result, we can have peace with God and the potential for peace with one another. This reality is the, is the theological truth serum that fills the vial of Paul's final words at the beginning of verse 23. Peace be to the brothers. There's a lot packed into that short little statement. He also prays that love with faith would mark the believers in Ephesus. And and I, I love this phrase, love with faith. It is such a biblical phrase. In fact, it might even be more theologically power packed than the previous phrase. After verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, after they gloriously recount detailed reminders of all that is true for believers in Christ, Paul says in the very next verse, in verse 15 of chapter 1, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to God for you, remembering you in my prayers." Love that flows from faith is perhaps the distinguishing marker of a Christian. Love that flows from faith is perhaps the preeminent distinguishing marker of the Christian. Here Paul combines those two ideas with an extremely tight phrase, love with faith. In other places, he puts it this way, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, I give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of everyone, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Love flows from faith and in this sense validates true faith as authentic. This is really describing the the healthiest church dynamic 
possible. Where faith is increasing, love should be abounding. Where faith is abounding, love should be increasing. They shouldn't look like this, and they definitely shouldn't look like this. So we need to ask the question, especially during this really challenging time, is either of these lacking? Or is either of these waning for us as a body now? I mean, it's been hard to get together. Where do we need to be built up in faith as a body? And where does our love, specifically for one another, flowing from our faith in God, where does it need to be exercised more freely, more generously, more graciously? And and what would it look like to do so? It would look like, it would look exactly like Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. Faith and love are so closely linked biblically because they both come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul tells Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is the key phrase from Ephesians. In which all of our spiritual blessings are found. You are blessed by God the Father in Christ with every spiritual blessing, verse 3 of chapter 1. You were chosen by God the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world, verse 4. You were made to be holy and blameless before the Father in heaven in Christ. You were adopted by the Father in love through Jesus Christ, verse 5. And that is true for every single person who has expressed faith in Christ Jesus. You now have God. For your father. The father planned to love you in Christ. The father planned to love you in Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 5. You have been blessed in the beloved. That is, of course, in Christ. To the praise of God's glorious grace. Verse 6. You have... You have been redeemed through his blood. That is the blood of Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 7. In Christ you have been lavished with the riches of God's grace. Verse 7 and 8. God's character is of such a nature that he is not just a dispenser of small amounts of grace for every person's situation. That doesn't capture the idea at all. God lavishly, overwhelmingly pours out his grace over his people. And that is true for you if you are in Christ. God's plan of redemption for you and for the unity of all things was set forth in Christ. In Christ, you have obtained an eternal 
inheritance, namely intimate fellowship with God forever. Because of your hope in Christ, you live as a walking witness to the praise of God's glory, verse 12. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who guarantees that you will experience the eternal blessedness of your inheritance forever. That is, forever. Just to be real clear, I mean forever to the praise of God's glorious grace. Because all of these spiritual blessings are things we have received. They are not earned through effort. But are to be received as gifts through faith. Because of this, God alone deserves the glory and honor for making them realities. Because these gifts come from God the Father. Because they are found only in Christ Jesus, God's glorious Son. And because they are guaranteed by the presence and the power of the, of the most Holy Spirit of God. God, our gloriously triune God and God alone rightly deserves praise for them. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. These priceless, invaluable blessings all come to us by grace from God through faith in Christ. This is the grace that Paul is talking about here at the beginning of verse 24, the final verse of Ephesians. Every one of these phrases is packed with all of the theological content that has preceded it in this glorious book. This is the grace Paul asks would be with us here in verse 24. That is, with those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The word incorruptible here means, means pure, undying, unending. It's often translated imperishable or immortal in the New Testament. So what heart tension are you feeling at this moment? If, if all this grace that, that Paul has been describing throughout this letter and in these condensed verses, if he's praying that all this grace would be available to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with, with incorruptible love, what's the question that you're asking yourself or that you're feeling inside? Is this true for me? I love Jesus, but I'm not sure I would say my love for him is incorruptible. I don't know if I would describe it as pure, as undying, as an immortal love. Do you feel the tension when you read these words? But the truth is, there needn't be any tension if we understand what Paul is saying here. 
Our love with faith, as Paul calls it in verse 23, is a love given by the Father. It is a love found in Christ, and it is a love sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is this God-given, grace-dependent, Spirit-sealed love that will be undying, unending, immortal, and is therefore incorruptible because we are in Christ for from him and to him and through him are all things so that to him will be glory forever Romans 11:36 therefore because our love along with the love of all other believers in Jesus because this love is an incorruptible Indeed, it is an immortal love, an unending love. Because God often demonstrates his power in practical ways through through ordinary people. If you want to know what an ordinary person looks like, turn your head to the side. All of us are ordinary. Because of this immortal love, we will, as ordinary as we are, one day in the future and forever. I'm stuck on this forever piece because it's so hard to believe, but it's true forever and ever and ever, along with Paul and Tychicus and the Ephesians, both the Jews and the Gentiles that belong to that church, as well as brothers and sisters from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, we will, with an immortal love, declare in perfectly glorious unity, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We will declare that and sing that and exult in that literally forever to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be all blessing and honor and glory and power both now and forever. Amen. Amen and amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the glory of who you are. As we've been exalting in the greatness of your character and the beauty of your glory all morning through song and in prayer and through your word proclaimed. We are staggered by the reality of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ, in Christ, as articulated by Paul in Ephesians. And so we now want to exalt you because you and you alone are worthy of praise. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your name and your name alone is holy. And so we as a united people now by the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith in Christ, 
we worship you, Yahweh, as the one and only true God who deserves all blessing and praise. Amen.